Hebrews 3.7 to Hebrews 4.11. The 13th talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on January 11th, 2015 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2015. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number 5, Translation, Installment 2, accompanies this talk. You will remember, and I'm sorry if this is too repetitious, but we need to understand this, I think, to understand the argument of the book. The background is that the Jews in the first century have confronted the gospel of Jesus, the claim that there is this man who claimed to be the Messiah, and he was crucified by the Romans, but he raised from the dead, vindicating his claim to be the Messiah, and he taught a message of good news, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was not going to hold our sins against us, but was willing to be profoundly merciful and offer the blessing of Abraham eternal life to evil people like us. This incredible good news message that he brought. Those who associated with him, became followers of him, could have the promise that they would receive that mercy. The people who would not receive that mercy are the people who rejected Jesus and rejected his claim rejected the God who sent him. The Jews had initially, many Jews had initially believed that message. But over time, the impact on their life was that they got beaten up, arrested, cheated, marginalized in the largely Jewish society of which they were a part of. The unbelieving Jews persecuted them. And over time, over the days and decades, they grew weary. Jody and I were talking just before, just this afternoon. It's so easy when you read the scriptures. I was looking, I was commenting that how striking it was to me that there were two and a half months between the exodus from Egypt and arriving at Mount Sinai. Well, my mind doesn't go there. My mind goes, they went out of Egypt and there was Mount Sinai and, and all the stuff at Mount Sinai happened. But there was two and a half months. And in real life, in real human existence, two and a half months can be a long time. The daily mundanity and weariness of making meals and cleaning up and organizing your life and all the labor and all the chores, you can get weary. Add on to that persecution where the people around you hate you and hold you in contempt for the very commitment that you've made to Jesus. And it doesn't take long for what might seem like a little while to seem like an eternity, to seem like a long time. So they have believed in Jesus. This is the one who allegedly is the king of the eternal kingdom of God, right? So he's the, he's the one that was appointed to be king of the eternal kingdom of God. So you, with all kinds of excitement, you believe in him, and you begin to expect the kingdom of God to come. And day after day after long, dreary day goes by, and there is no kingdom of God. So after a while, the questions that you've never really resolved because you've never really understood well enough what God's purposes are, all of a sudden those questions begin to boil up to the surface. 
And the questions that seem to be relevant to the Jews in this time are, but he was just a human being. I mean, like he was from Nazareth. He was this Galilean peasant and had human father, human mother. Well, I didn't have a human father, but had a human mother. He was thoroughly human. He wasn't supposed to be, the Messiah is supposed to be a bigger deal than that. He's not just an ordinary human being. And he was so ordinary that he got himself dead. The Romans defeated him, and they killed him. They crucified him. Ah, but he was raised from the dead. Yeah, you say so, but I'm beginning to wonder. Is that a legend? Is that a tale? Is that a story that you guys are telling me? Or did it really happen? Because I look around, and I don't see the kingdom of God. He was supposed to usher in the kingdom of God, and I'm not seeing it. So all of a sudden, all these questions begin flooding in, undermining their confidence and their hope, sapping their hope. And they're beginning to rethink whether they even want to throw in their lot with Jesus. So bit by bit, they begin to drift back to the Judaism they were raised in, the ancestral Judaism that they came from, and just sticking Jesus on the shelf and saying, that costs too much, it's too hard. I'm not interested in believing in him. And that's what prompts Paul to write the book of Hebrews. He's writing to just those people. So in the first section, we saw him deal with the question of his humanity and his mortality, talking about how exactly on schedule that was. That's what the prophets told us was going to happen. I mean, you may have wanted him to be a bigger deal than a human being, but no prophet ever promised that he'd be anything but a son of David a human being who would be the king who would rule over the kingdom of God in all of eternity. And granted, we don't see the kingdom of God yet, but like Isaiah of old, we need to have the kind of trust and the kind of hope where we believe in the promises of God even if we don't see them yet. They're coming. They will be fulfilled. They will be realized. It's a matter of time. And yeah, life is long and hard, but it's part of the gig. We come into this world and we come into belief and we wait and we wait. And our belief is a challenge, it's a battle to persevere in continuing to hope in that which is important to us, even if we're not seeing it happen. And then finally we get to chapter 3, my paragraph 11 in my translation. Therefore, sanctified brothers, partners in a divine summons, Consider carefully the one who, according to our confession, is the divine representative and high priest, Jesus, who is trusted by the one who made him, just as indeed Moses was in all his household. But this one has been considered worthy of greater glory than Moses by just so much as the one who provides for the household has more honor than the household. Indeed, every household is provided for by someone, And the one providing for everyone is God. Now Moses, on the one hand, was trusted in all his household as a servant to be a witness to the things that were going to be explained. But the Messiah, on the other hand, is like a son over his household, whose household we are if we hold on firmly to our confidence and to the boast of our hope until the end. So here in this section, he addresses the fact that As they grow weary and are returning back to Judaism, they're returning back to Moses, right? So he contrasts Jesus and Moses. Who's the bigger deal? And he draws in a very simple, straightforward analogy. If we had a household, 
Moses would be like a faithful servant in that household who served the householder, the owner, the landowner, who served him faithfully. And Moses was a big deal, was a very important servant in the purposes of God. And it's right to respect him and to honor him and follow him. It's all right and good. But Moses doesn't hold a candle to hold to who Jesus is. Jesus is a son in the household. He's the one who's going to inherit all the land and all the property and be the owner of all of that. So if you respect Moses, all the more should you respect Jesus. Okay, and he's setting us up then for what follows. Jesus, as the Son, was sent into the world to speak to us, to teach us. Remember how he starts the book of Hebrews? After God spoke through the, to the fathers, through the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. Jesus was not just the Son and the King, but he's the one who, who came into the world to convey to us, to reveal to us the truth of the good news of the gospel. So this one who's a son in the household and not merely a servant, he has come into the world and spoken to us. Therefore, how are we going to respond? How are we going to respond to what he taught us? And that's where part six begins. Verse seven, chapter three, verse seven. Therefore, it is just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers put me on trial, they put me to the test. They had indeed seen my works, therefore for 40 years I was angry at that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Accordingly, I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. Take care, my brothers, lest perhaps an evil heart of unbelief might exist in someone among you whereby he departs from the life-giving God. Rather, be seeking to persuade one another day after day, so long as it is called today, so that no one among you is hardened by the deceit of sin. For we have become partners of the Messiah if we hold on to our beginning, our claim on eternal life, firmly until the end. I've altered that translation slightly from probably what you have. Okay. So we started to look at this the last time we were here in Hebrews, and we looked at Psalm 95, which is the psalm that he quotes at some length here in this passage. In Psalm 95, David is looking back on the event of the people of Israel being led out of Egypt, out of captivity in Egypt, and led into the wilderness, and two times they have found themselves in a situation where they're without food, uh, it's usually without, I think in every case it's without food or water, and they get restive, they get, are very uncomfortable, they start moaning and complaining and grumbling, and I think really basically are ready to mount a rebellion against Moses. Moses is their leader, and they're not much liking the way he's taking care of them. Neither Moses nor the God that Moses is allegedly following, they're not much liking how they're taking care of him. So they're ready to, at one point, they even say, this is later, I think, they even say, let's kill Moses and elect a new leader who will lead us back into Egypt. So the third time, they come to, they're in a desert without any water, and they're grumbling again. And the text says, as you remember, 
can't remember exactly how it gets expressed, but their concern is, is God for us or is he against us? Did God bring us out here into the wilderness so he could kill us? He said he was going to take us to the promised land, but it's looking like he just led us into the wilderness so we can die of thirst. Let's change our mind. Let's not follow him. Let's hightail it back to Egypt where we had water and food. That's their sentiment. And it gets described as testing God or as trying God. What they mean by that is they are debating in their mind whether God can be trusted. That's the trial. Can he be trusted or not? Can I count on him to take care of me and provide for me and protect me and bless me in any meaningful way? Or is he out to harm me? That's a basic human question that all of us have faced at various times in our life and will face again. We will face it over and over and over again. Who is God in relationship to me? Is he a God that I can trust because he has my best interests in mind? Or is he a destroyer, a harmer, a God who is out to just play with me and make my life miserable whenever he wants to make my life miserable? Sometimes it seems that way to us. And we, we're faced with the question of whether or not we can get past the appearance of what it looks like God is doing in my life and see the larger picture of how God's intention is to make me, to create me, to deepen me, to make me a person of substance, to make me a person of faith, a creature who understands the creator and who's rightly related to the creator in the right kind of way, and thereby make me a fit citizen for the eternal kingdom of God one day. And that's God's primary agenda in all of our lives. His primary agenda is not to make me comfortable right now. It's not to give me what I want right now. It's not to satisfy me right now. I'm going to be very unsatisfied. I'll never forget Moshe Rosen, the leader of Jews for Jesus, starting off a lecture that I heard once. Many people say, come to Jesus and he will make you happy. My experience is you come to Jesus and sometimes he makes you very unhappy, but it's always worthwhile. And then he started his talk, but he said it with a Jewish Brooklyn accent. and It was, <laughs> it was wonderful. So they were trying God. They were weighing in the scales whether or not they were willing to entrust their lives and their well-being to this God who had brought them out of Egypt, which is fine. God needs to be tried. God needs to be evaluated. God needs to be tested. But when you test a God who's already proven himself, then we're not talking about trial. We're talking about unbelief. And that's what this whole psalm is all about. Let me read it again. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers put me on trial. They put me to the test. They had indeed seen my works. Therefore, for 40 years, I was angry at that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Accordingly, I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. What is the punishment? The punishment is not because they wanted to know whether God can be trusted. That's just human, and that's perfectly appropriate, and that's perfectly natural. I shouldn't trust someone who has not been tested. 
But the problem is, in the story of the history of Israel, God has shown himself over and over and over again, in their case, in incredibly dramatic supernatural ways. He's proven to them that he's capable of taking care of them, he intends to take care of them, and he has a purpose to take care of them. He's proven that to them. And yet, in the hardness of the human heart, we have this tendency to selectively ignore the proof and exaggerate the question. Oh, yeah, 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 he did all that, but look what he's doing right now. What about that? What about that? What he's doing right now worries me. I don't know if he's trustworthy. I don't know what his intentions are. I don't know if he has my well-being in mind or not, because we're focused on the immediate circumstances that are not to our liking. And because it's not to my liking, we have this self-absorbed tendency to think that God is against me. But he had proven himself. He had declared to Israel, I have purposes. And you have a role in those purposes. You have a place in those purposes. And I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And you just sit back and watch. And I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Just trust me. But they couldn't get there. They couldn't get to the place where they were willing to let God take them on the journey that he was going to take them on if it meant costing them and making them uncomfortable and making them grieve at times. They weren't prepared to trust him that much. So that's the trial that they're trying him with at Meribah. Well, that's what we talked about last time. I'll just comment on one other thing here because I'm going to use this language throughout the rest of the time here. I translated the end of that psalm, accordingly, I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. Literally in the Greek, it's accordingly, I swore in my wrath, if they will enter my rest. Now, what? (laughs) that's strange syntax. In our idiom, and I want to say it, forgive me, I don't mean to offend you, some of you may not be comfortable with it, but it's the idiom that captures the strength of what he's saying. Accordingly, I swore in my wrath, I'll be damned if I'm going to let them enter my rest. That's the force of it. That's what he's saying. I'll be damned if they're going to enter my rest. So it's this absolute rejection of their unbelief. That's what's being described here. So after he quotes the psalm, he says, Take care, my brothers, lest perhaps an evil heart of unbelief might exist in someone among you whereby he departs from the life-giving God. So just as we see how God deals with unbelief in the case of the fathers back in the time of the Exodus in Israel, Paul is saying, you, my brothers, you need to watch out. You need to take care. Take care that the same heart of unbelief, and he calls it an evil heart of unbelief, the same heart of unbelief that kind of affected their attitude toward God doesn't creep in and affect your response to God. This is one of the places in the New Testament where you see an absolutely direct link between belief and evil. He calls it an evil heart of unbelief. Where does unbelief come from? Unbelief is not, the unbelief that God judges is not lack of information, lack of education, lack of intelligence, lack of some kind of resource that allows me to find my way to belief. The unbelief that he's talking about is an unbelief that arises and is rooted in the evil of the human heart. It's a refusal to believe. He calls it hardness of heart early on. Do not harden your heart. It's this 
willful decision that I make, and it is a willful decision to just simply stop being stubborn, stop being unwilling to believe, stop being obdurate. Don't be that way. The way to deal with evil unbelief is not to give them an argument, is not to persuade them, it's to say, cut it out. Just do it differently. Stop it. Stop being stubborn. And so he's warning them, don't be stubborn in that way. We can always cloak our stubbornness in arguments. We can always cloak our stubbornness in reasons why I'm really not sure I want to commit or I'm really not sure that's true or I'm really not sure that I should believe that. We can pretty it up and make it look respectable, intellectually respectable. But if at the root, in the final analysis, I'm just being stubborn, that's what God judges. That's the one to whom God is saying, I'll be damned if I'm ever going to let you enter my rest. We'll get to what his rest is, but whatever his rest is, he'll be damned if you're going to enter it. So take care, my brothers, lest perhaps an evil heart of unbelief might exist in someone among you, whereby he departs from the life-giving God. Now, in the context here, in the context in which Paul is writing, what would it mean to depart from the life-giving God? It would mean to abandon what it is that the God who grants life will grant you, and how do you depart from him? How do you remove yourself from him? How do you distance yourself from the life-giving God? By not believing in his son Jesus, in the context of the argument here. That's what they're tempted to do. I'm just not going to take Jesus and what he taught to us seriously. I'm going to ignore that. That would be to depart from the God who sent him to give us the message of life, the God who can grant me life. It would be to separate myself from him and his promise. I know most of your English translations have living God, That Greek word, I'm convinced, I think almost always, maybe there are some exceptions, but in the New Testament, that word should probably translate it life-giving rather than living. It has to do with the fact that he has the power and authority and wherewithal to grant life or to give life. Rather, instead of departing from the life-giving God, rather be seeking to persuade one another day after day, so long as it is called today, so that no one among you is hardened by the deceit of sin. So we should be seeking with respect to one another to constantly be persuading, motivating ourselves to stop being stubborn, stop being rebellious, don't harden your heart. We simply need to appeal to one another, remind one another of the danger, and persuade one another to not go that direction. And that should be true as long as it is called today. Sort of a little poetic flourish there. As long as it is called today, that's the day when we should be encouraging and persuading one another to not harden our hearts. He talks about being hardened by the deceit of sin. The sin within us, that rebelliousness, that natural depravity that affects every last one of us, has a tendency to lie to us my own rebelliousness, I tell myself lies. And I tell myself that all is going to be well when it's not going to be well. And I tell myself that the blessing of God is not worth it when the blessing of God is very much worth it. All sorts of lies that we justify our rebellion and our hardness. And he calls that the being hardened by the deceit of sin. 
for we have become partners of the Messiah if we hold on to our beginning, our claim on eternal life firmly until the end. Let's see, most of your English translations have something like if we hold on the beginning of our something, hold on to the beginning of it until the end or something like that. I take it differently. I think the beginning, okay, it's literally the arche of hypostasis in the Greek. The arche means beginning and we have to figure out what to do with hypostasis. What's the hypostasis? The beginning, I think, is the faith that they have already shown. They were confronted with the gospel. They were confronted with the claims about Jesus, and they believed them and they embraced them. And they said, yes, I think it's true, and I want to be a disciple of Jesus, and I want to head down this road. That's where they began. That's where the set of people has begun. They have begun to be followers of Jesus. Well, that's, I think, the beginning that he's talking about. That beginning is what you need to hold on to firmly until the end. They're wanting to split. They're wanting to depart. They're wanting to go back to Mosaic Judaism that doesn't know Jesus and doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. So they don't want to hold on to where they started and keep on keeping on with where they started. They don't want to do that. And he's saying, no, you want, you want to hold on to that until the end. But he calls it the beginning of hypostasis. And I think what he's doing is equating the beginning with the hypostasis. Now, hypostasis gets translated a lot of different ways. The most striking one to me is if you look in the papyra, it is used to describe the underlying legal document that gives you title to a, what we would call it title, that is the proof of your ownership of a house, for example. So what we call the title to a house, they would call the hypostasis of the house. Hypostasis just means that which underlies so what is it that underlies your claim to ownership of something? The hypostasis, the title. Here, it's our faith that is the underlying proof of our claim to be inheritors of eternal life. Why is it that I can know that I have eternal life one day? Because look at my faith. My faith is the evidence. It's the concrete, more or less tangible a manifestation in my life that I'm someone who's qualified to be granted eternal life one day. It's my hypostasis of eternal life. So where you started, he's saying, what Paul is saying to his readers is where you started, you started by actually professing belief in Jesus, that he is the Messiah, that he is the one sent to be king of the eternal kingdom of God, and you were willing to throw in your lot with him. That is your claim to the promise of eternal life. That's your claim. Hold on to that firmly until the end. Don't throw that away. Because if you throw that away, you're throwing away your claim to eternal life. That's his argument. Let's stop there. I've thrown a lot of stuff at you. Let's pause there for any questions you have before we go on. Thanks, Jack. So it seems like the argument in chapter 3 pivots on Moses being a really like solid and unquestionable example for... I'm sorry, say that again. What kind of example? Uh, just a solid and unquestionable example that the argument, readers wouldn't look at this argument and say, oh, well, you know, we have doubts about Moses too. But Moses was also a human chosen by God for a specific role who died in the, in the past. 
So could you help me understand what was going on in the religious tradition to make Moses such an, like, an unquestionable example to be used here? Does that make sense? Yeah, good. Yeah, that, what your, your question raises, I, I've thought about this a number of times about the book of Hebrews. How do we apply the book of Hebrews to our lives? With great effort and with great difficulty, because we live thousands of years apart from them. Our questions are not their questions. Our issues are not their issues. Our doubts are not their doubts. They lived in a completely different world. And in the world, now remember, these are Jewish believers. So it's unthinkable that you wouldn't follow Moses. Not even for intellectual reasons, but just for cultural reasons. Some questions are live questions for us. Other questions are not live questions for us. Some of our doubts are real doubts. Other doubts, we would have to work to doubt them. And not because of our thinking and our arguments and our evidence and our experience, but sometimes it's simply because something is so taken for granted in my worldview and in my belief system that it, would, it just wouldn't occur to me to question it or challenge it. And I think that was true. That would be true of his readers here. So in a sense, is that a strategic move to select Moses as an example because he's so unquestionable in that culture? Well, not, but not, sim- I mean, because there's other things that are unquestionable. Right. I, I don't think it's merely because he's unquestionable. It's actually the live issue before them. Are you going to yeah. follow Moses or Jesus? Yeah, because what was going on is here's a representative from God, and the concrete way you're showing the hardening of your heart is by exactly. rejecting him. Exactly right. Yeah, okay. exactly. Thank you. Hey, Jack. So back to the cave, of the hoopostasis, it seems like you're taking that as, well, I mean, obviously you've talked about that as being faith. Do you, think, do you think that in part what he could be talking about is the content of that faith? I'm wondering if the RK of the hoopostasis could also be the resurrection itself. What they are having faith in is this reality about who Christ is, and the resurrection itself is kind of the this very dramatic God putting his stamp of approval upon Christ and his work. And in a sense, that's a down payment on the expectation that we have of life, right? That we see in the resurrection sort of the the beginning or the first instance of the life that is promised mm-hmm. to believers one day. Yeah, that always gets difficult because the content of faith and the subjective component of faith are sometimes hard to separate. But if it weren't for the two hypostasis, if it weren't for the of hypostasis there, mm-hmm. then I'd probably be inclined to go that direction and think, yeah, it's the content, and it's that content we are to hold on to firmly. Mm-hmm. So the content includes Jesus' claim to be the Messiah and the evidence that, that his claim was valid and so on. So don't throw that away. Mm-hmm. Don't make the proper inferences from that and believe what you ought to believe. Mm-hmm. And that would be a very straightforward way to take it. I have to take hypostasis differently in order to go that direction here. I think he's talking about the subjective reality Mm. that I have, instead of having a hardened heart, I have had a receptive heart that has embraced that truth. Now, granted, it is that truth that you just outlined. Mm. But I have an open heart that has embraced that truth, Mm. and that's my claim on eternal life. Mm. It's the fact that I have responded in that way that's my claim on eternal life. So because I'm taking hypostasis that way, I think it has to be my subjective response to that Mm. content and not the content itself. 
Now, if there's a different and better way to take hypostasis, then I could rethink that. But. No, I, it's super tricky because the way that he describes God at the beginning of that argument as the life-giving God, yeah, you know, yeah. seems to set up that expectation that it's in the capacity of God giving life. You right. know that, but yeah, the fact that those who He will give life are the ones who He invests faith in. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to separate the two. <laughs> yeah. No. Exactly. But that's a constant theme throughout the New Testament is exactly as you just described it. The God who has determined and purposed to give life to some instills faith in those people in whom he is going to give life. And I think that's the background to everything he's saying in this paragraph. Anything else? Okay, let's move on. Paragraph 13. As for what is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. Now who provoked him? When they had heard, indeed, was it not all those who came out of Egypt by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, if not to those who refused to believe? So we see that they were not able to enter on account of their unbelief. What we're going to see in the next three paragraphs, I love this section because we get a glimpse into the thoroughness of the mind of Paul. He's going to engage in incredibly detailed, thorough exegesis of Psalm 95 now. And in this paragraph, this first paragraph, he makes basically two points. The most important of his points is, notice, captured in uh, sentence 8. So we see that they were not able to enter on account of their unbelief. So this hardness that he's talking about What is it exactly that was the source of God saying, I'll be damned if they're going to enter my rest? What caused, what provoked God to respond in that kind of way? What was it about them? What manifestation of their evil? What aspect of their evil? And he's careful to point out that if we look at the historical account, why did God respond that way? It's because they didn't believe. God promised and they refused to accept and believe the promise that God had made to them. That's what he's responding to. That's critical that we understand that. None of us are going to be blocked from eternal life because we're not good. None of us are going to be blocked from eternal life because we're not religious, because we're not pious, because we don't, we're not good Christians or whatever. There's one and only one thing. There's only one unforgivable sin. And the unforgivable sin is that I would take the promise of God spoken to me by the Spirit of God, and say, nah, don't think so. And there's lots of ways to do that. We can do it with real, overt, explicit defiance. Nah, I don't believe it. I'm not going to believe it. I'm never going to believe it. Or we can just take it all in, even be intrigued by it, have our mind titillated by thinking about it and so on, and then as quickly as we absorb it and confront it, just sort of set it aside as irrelevant. Okay, I hear you, but it's not really sort of relevant to the way I'm going to live my life. I'm not going to do anything with it. So we set it aside and live our life the same way any other human being out there is living their life in our culture. We just become one more of them. And the one who is hearing the voice of God is going to be changed by the voice of God. Because the life-giving God, the God who transcends all of reality and who is the author of all reality, has spoken. And I need to take that seriously. 
and any demands that what he has said place on me, I need to meet them. I don't mean I need to do what he's said to do. I mean I need to believe what he said is true and live in the light of that truth that he said is true. That's the belief that God is looking for, that God is expecting as a response to his word. That's what the people coming out of Egypt did not give to God's promise. The good news that he proclaimed to them, they shined it on and ignored it and were more interested in how to fix quail than the promised land that he had promised them. The other point that he's making, now who provoked them when they had heard? Indeed, was it not all those who came out of Egypt by Moses? Paul uses this same reality to make this point more explicitly in the book of 1 Corinthians. All the people of Israel walked on dry land across the sea, the Red Sea or whatever sea it was. They walked on dry land and watched the soldiers of Pharaoh get drowned behind them. That was true of every single individual in Israel. What a spectacular testimony to the care of God that he would save you and rescue you in the way that he did at the Red Sea. And everyone in Israel could make a claim to have been there and to have experienced that and to have been the benefactor of God's supernatural, miraculous deliverance from Pharaoh's army. And most of them, God said to them, I'll be damned if you're going to enter my rest. It's very striking. (laughs) I can associate with God. I can hook my wagon to God and to Jesus, and I can identify with him and associate with him and join the people who name the name of God or name the name of Jesus. But it's not what's going to happen to the people that's going to determine what's going to happen to me. God does not save wholesale. He saves individuals, retail. He comes to each and every one of us as individuals, and the question is, have I hardened myself against God's voice? Have I believed him? It doesn't really matter what's happening around me and who I'm associated with. It doesn't even matter in what ways God has spectacularly reached into my life to care for me and to demonstrate his care for me and to demonstrate his protection or safety or whatever. God may do that, but that doesn't mean you're well-pleasing to him. It does not mean that you're acceptable to him. One and only one thing makes us acceptable to him. When God speaks... I'm receptive to it. When God promises, I believe the promise. When God instructs, I take his instruction seriously. It's hearing the voice of God today that I must do in order to qualify for eternal life. Otherwise, I'll end up being one more corpse in the wilderness. No matter that I'm a part of a whole community that God has organized around his name and around his truth and around his teaching, that doesn't do anything for me. Even being connected with that doesn't mean anything for me. I must listen to his voice. So I think that's why he is careful to point out, who is it that was provoked to test God when they heard? Wasn't it those who came out of Egypt by Moses? Every last single one of them? So being led out of Egypt was not enough. It was being tried by God through circumstances, adverse circumstances, that tested whether we will believe the promises of God or not. And it's only those who believed when they were tested that will receive eternal life, that will receive life from the life-giving God. Questions on that paragraph? Okay, going on. Therefore, let us fear lest, since a promise to enter his rest remains, 
someone from among you may seem to have come up short. For indeed, we are ones who were given good news, just as they were also. But the content of that report did not profit those people, because it was not joined together with belief in those who heard. For it is we who have believed who enter the rest. In this section, he's reiterating his point from the last paragraph, that belief is the issue. And he had already made that point in the end of 13. So we see that they were not able to enter on account of their unbelief. Here he repeats, it's we who believe who enter the rest. So he repeats that point and emphasizes that again. And then the other point he brings up in paragraph 14 is, there is a rest that still exists as a possible destiny for us. In the psalm, David recognized with respect to his contemporaries, there's a rest that you can enter into or you can miss out on. He doesn't say that explicitly in the psalm, but by implication, it's there. Why would you warn me not to harden my heart? Because the fathers, when they hardened their heart, God swore that they wouldn't enter the rest. Why would that warning be relevant to me if there wasn't a rest for me to enter into? That's Paul's reasoning. So that would be a, David would be making a completely empty and meaningless exhortation if there doesn't remain a relevant rest for his contemporaries to not miss out on. Paul then is applying that to us, and by implication, well, maybe it's more than an implication. I think he's making it pretty explicit. There's a rest for his readers that he's warning them, you don't want to miss out on that. So don't harden your hearts because it's only those who believe who are going to enter the rest. If you harden your hearts and stubbornly persist in unbelief or insist on unbelief, then you're going to miss out on the rest that awaits you. And what Paul is saying to his readers remains true today, as long as it is called today. It remains true that there's a rest that remains for us. And the question is, will I enter into that rest or will I not enter into that rest? And what's going to determine that? That I don't harden my heart, but rather I respond to the voice of God in belief. That's the logic of this whole argument, or the application that he's making of Psalm 95. Questions on that? That's relatively straightforward, but anything on that? Okay, now it gets more difficult. Paragraph 15. It reads like this. As I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest, or... As I swore in my wrath, I'll be damned if they enter my rest. Even though from the foundation of the world, his works were brought into being. For it reads somewhere concerning the seventh day thus, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. That's a quote from Genesis 2.2. Yet again, in this one, we read, they will not enter my rest. Therefore, it remains for some to enter into it. And those who formerly were given good news did not enter because of their stubborn unbelief. He again fixes a certain day today, saying by David after so great a time, as it has been quoted above, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now all of that, I think, those four sentences, his purpose is to eliminate one possible interpretation of Psalm 95. Now let me lay out the possible interpretations that Paul seems to have in mind. And what Paul is going to do is eliminate option one, then he's going to eliminate option two, and then by process of elimination, the only one remaining is option number three, and then he's going to say that's what David was talking about. So let's look at what those options were. The first option is 
we know that God's rest was what happened on the seventh day of creation, right? He worked for six days, creating the world, bringing the world into being, and on the seventh day, he rested. Just so we're clear here, God did not rest because he was tired. He didn't break a sweat bringing the world into existence. He spoke the world into existence. He could do it effortlessly. All he had to do is to will it to be, and it was. So what is this resting that we're talking about? It's sort of unfortunate in a way that we translate it rest because it has all those connotations of refreshing yourself after you've exhausted yourself and you're weary. That's not what we're talking about. The rest that God enjoyed on the seventh day was cessation from working to accomplish his goals to having successfully accomplished his goals. His goal is to make a world, to make a cosmos. At the end of the sixth day, he had made the cosmos. There was nothing more to make to set the stage for this narrative that he wanted to unfold throughout human history. The stage had been set. There was nothing more to do. He could stop in the efforts to bring that into existence. That was his rest. Okay. Well, what is God's rest then? Is God's rest the world that he created? Could be. You could use language that way, that you could, with alluding back to the Genesis account, you could talk about the seventh day as God's rest being the stars and the mountains and the trees and the rivers and the brooks and the springs and everything for us to enjoy, and we are participating in God's rest in that sense. We are enjoying and benefiting from God's rest. That is, from God's having successfully completed making a cosmos for us to live in. So the first question that Paul's going to ask is, is that what David meant? Is that the rest that he's refusing to let us enter? Let me give you some parallel examples here to try to illustrate the point I'm making. If it's not obvious, this is fictional. Once upon a time, before he had even one creative thought at all, the imaginer of the land of unreal world made up the land of unreal world in his mind in all of its sparkling detail. When he had finished, he rejoiced, for he had finally succeeded in imagining something to completion. He considered filling the land of unreal world with people imaginers, imagined to be in the image of the imaginer himself. But then he thought again, what if such people imaginers do not honor me? I do not want them to exist in unreal world. So he resolved in his heart, any people imaginer who would not come to honor me, I will not allow him to enter into my rejoicing. So he rejoiced when he had completed it, and so I'm calling it my rejoicing. I will not allow him to even exist in unreal world at all. So if in the course of unreal world, God gave a warning, it might go like this. I'll be damned if I'm going to allow any disrespectful person to enter my rejoicing. So there, the rejoicing is just the objective reality that came into being because that was God's goal, that was God's purpose, that was God's project, to bring an objective cosmos into being that would be the arena in which we dwelt. So to not enter that would be to have no existence there. Okay, I think that's what Paul is eliminating as option number one. I mean, I'm sorry, that, that option is the one he's eliminating in the first four sentences of this paragraph. He says, it reads like this, as I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest, even though from the foundation of the world, 
his works were brought into being. Now, why is that significant? I think what he's saying is when he says, even though from the foundation of the world his works were brought into being, I think what he's saying is, well, isn't it kind of too late to block us from entering his rest in that sense? His works are already completed. We enjoy them every day. We participate in them every day. We are a part of this world, this objective cosmos. So surely David is not saying God will block you from having existence in his world. So God's rest, whatever it is, it doesn't mean that. Linguistically, it could, but that's not what David intended. For it reads somewhere concerning the seventh day thus, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Yet again in this one, they will not enter my rest. Okay, well, it says that God rested from his works on the seventh day, and we're all a part of that. But David is saying we will not enter the rest. That must not be the rest that he's saying we won't enter then, because we're already there. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter into it, whatever this rest is, it's something that remains for us to enter into. And those who formerly were given good news did not enter because of their stubborn unbelief. He again fixes a certain day today, he being David does, he again fixes a certain day today, saying by David after so great a time, as it has been quoted above, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Okay? So in the first four sentences, he eliminates one possible reading of Psalm 95. In the next sentence, he eliminates a second option. Now, if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that one. Okay, what does he mean by that? Well, another possibility for you will not enter my rest is God had made a promise to Israel that he was going to take them into a certain piece of real estate, the promised land. He was going to protect them from their enemies, give them safety from their enemies, prosper them there, and they would dwell there in security, and they would be God's people, and God would be their God. That was the promise he made to them. One could easily see how you could summarize all that by calling it God's rest. So maybe that's what he meant by, you will not enter my rest. Now, that, of course, makes a whole lot of sense in Psalm 95, because that's exactly what God was telling them that they wouldn't enter. They were on their way to the promised land where God had promised them security, prosperity, and so on in that land. And that's the good news he had preached to them, and they didn't believe it. And so he says, I'll be damned if you're going to enter my rest. So that would be a very, very straightforward reading of Psalm 95. But Paul quite astutely says that can't be what David's talking about. At least that's not the sense in which he means it, because David is writing after Joshua. And Joshua is the one who, in a very real sense, in a significant sense, took them into the land, conquered the Canaanites, threw the Canaanites out of the land, gave them a certain amount of security and safety in the land, and they prospered in the land. That was the fulfillment, or at least one sort of fulfillment, of the promise that God had made to Israel. And yet David, decades later, is writing a psalm saying, you need to take care lest you miss out on entering God's rest. Well, you're in the land at the most secure time in all of Israel when he's writing this, right? So if the rest is simply the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to them, then David can't be thinking that because he's holding out the hope for a rest that his contemporaries can either enjoy, enter into, or miss out on. Well, that's not going to be life in the promised land. 
security in the promised land. It can't be that. Now, it was for the fathers. That's exactly what it was for the fathers. But that can't be what David is warning his readers about. I hope you follow. Okay, so by process of elimination then, there's only one thing that remains. So then a Sabbath rest remains for the people of God. Now indeed, what did David mean by entering his rest? Now indeed, the one who enters his rest has himself rested from his works also, just as God did from his own. Therefore, let us be eager to enter that rest in order that no one fall by the same pattern of stubborn unbelief. Okay, now here he's teasing us a little bit. We could wish that he would have been a little bit more explicit and told us what our works are that we're resting from. But one thing is really clear. He's saying to enter God's rest is to enter into a state of rest that is analogous to the state of rest that God entered into back in the Genesis account. What happened in the Genesis account? God, for six days, went to work building a world. He finished it. He reached his goal. He finished his project. And when he attained his goal, he stopped. He could now stop and enjoy the fact that the goal had been reached. Analogously, what Paul is saying is, the one who's entered God's rest is one who has a project that is before them. They have a goal that they need to reach, that they need to attain to. There's a time of toil, a time of labor, a time when you are working to attain that goal. Once you have attained that goal and your mission is accomplished, now you can stop working because now you can simply enjoy the fact that you have attained that goal and accomplished your mission. As was the case with God, so can be the case with you. And so the way Paul is interpreting David is, when God swore in his wrath that they would not enter his rest, what he's, saying, what he's saying is, I'll be damned if I'm going to let you accomplish the goal that is before you and enjoy the success at reaching that goal. I'm not going to let that happen. You're not going to get there. Now, he doesn't tell us what that is. I'm going to propose something here in a second. He doesn't tell us what that is, but he's telling us how David is using his language for you Grammar freaks, he's taking it as a subjective genitive, the rest of God. It's the rest that God rested. You can analogously rest a rest of your own, where rest is not being refreshed from weariness, but rest is enjoying the fact that a project that I've taken on has been brought to completion and has been finished, and I've reached the goal. Okay, now, what is he talking about? In this context, I think it's clear enough what he's talking about. What he's talking about is eternal life, the blessing of Abraham, life beyond the grave, life beyond this world and reality of strife and grief and sorrow and toil and decay. Any of us who've taken that on as a project are working to that end right now. We are working to do what we must do to make ourselves qualified to have that destiny rather than another destiny. To enter the rest would be to reach the point where I'm no longer working for it because now I got it. My destiny is secure. My destiny is sealed. Now, I don't think he means in this lifetime. I think he means the time when we enter the rest is the time when this part of the story comes to an end and there's no more screwing up that I can do. There's no more hardening my heart. 
that I could possibly do. I'm beyond hardening my heart because I've reached that end of the end of that chapter of my existence. As some of you know, the reason I wasn't here last week is my brother died, and I went back to Tennessee to do the memorial service. The one thing that really strikes me about his death is that he has now been confirmed. He has now been sealed. His destiny is set. And as much as any human being can know the heart of another human being, I really think that his destiny is to enter the, is life beyond the grave in the eternal kingdom of God. And he struggled in later years, wondering, because of the circumstances of his life, wondering, does God approve of him? Is God punishing him? Is God judging him? Is he maybe a damnable person? I never believed that was the case, as much as he struggled with that psychologically. But now, there's no going back. He's reached the point of no return. His fate and destiny is sealed. God has come in and put a come put the bookend on this chapter of his, his existence. And from my perspective, he ran the race, he ran it to the end, he completed the race, and life is his. He has entered his rest, as I would understand this. So that's how I think he's using that. Now we struggle, now we fight, now we work. But the day is coming when who I am will once and for all finally be put in concrete. I'm a child of God, destined for the kingdom of God, and enjoy the fact that the goal I was working for, citizenship in the kingdom of God, is now no longer a hope, it is now a reality. That, I think, is to enter the rest. Okay, I'm running out of time. Let me just comment in passing. There's a whole stream of teaching that comes out of this chapter about the faith rest life that some of you, older people anyway, may have been exposed to. Major Bob Thiem and probably Ian Thomas and Norman Grubb and Watchman Nee and a whole lot of Bible teachers who in one way or another spoke about the faith rest life. All I want to say here is that's not what Paul's talking about. This is not about the faith rest life. This is about gaining eternal life when we have made transition out of this existence and our uh, project is sealed. Questions or comments? It almost sounds like this just isn't exposition, but it's correction. Part of their slipping uh, away from Jesus back into what they used to believe is holding the belief that this is the rest, that, that they live in, this is as good as it gets. Hmm. The world is as good as you make it. And it almost sounds like they have to be believing that for him to be correcting them. So by leaving Jesus, they're thinking they still get God's rest. And he's correcting them and saying, no, this is not the rest that David's talking about. The rest that David's talking about is the future when all of creation rests. And it, to me, it, it just feels like uh, you can't go back there. When you were there, you were wrong to begin with. This is how you should have been thinking back there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think what you're saying is profoundly true. I'm not sure that is the, the logic and the rhetoric of how he's making his argument. But what you're saying is profoundly true. And I think it does make sense that in a subtle kind of way, that had to be a part of the lie, the deception of sin in their life, is that if Jesus is really the Messiah, then I should have rest now. We have seen that, I think. Isn't that what you're saying? If Jesus is really the Messiah, and I'm a follower of Jesus, and the good news is that the kingdom of God is going to come because of Jesus, that should be now. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's very true, profoundly true. Thank you. In verse 7, where he says, Now the one who enters into his rest has himself rested from his works also. Is the works there the perseverance of our faith? Yeah, I think so. The fight, the struggle, the toil to believe, to obey, to take God seriously. Persevere. And, and therefore persevere, exactly. I think so. That's how I take it. Which is very, in and of itself, is profound. Because we're sold this bill of goods in the church that belief is easy. No, it's a fight. It's a struggle. It's a work. Yeah, I want to address the deceitfulness of sin that was the issue for Uh them and try to bring it into our realm a little bit. Okay. It seems like the Hebrews were willing to go along and walk with Moses and then they fall into the trial of God not providing for them and he answers their prayer and feeds them and then they go a little bit further with them and, and it seems like that's kind of what we do. And so where does that kind of leave us with dealing with our own being believers, kind of following Jesus, kind of like the Israelites following Moses, but at the drop of a hat, we don't actually act like we believe. And that just seems to be the common Christian experience, whether we like it or not. And, and that seems to be the story of our lives. You were talking about your, your brother dying and his story's over. I had a daughter that died this year and her story's over. And, mm-hmm. and our lives just seem to be like we're kind of waiting for God to fix everything but we're just kind of constantly not really believing what he's telling us. Mm-hmm. So how does that make us actually be people that are well-pleasing to him as we're actually living out these lives where we, we tell him we love him, but then we turn around and pretend like he's not even there? Mm-hmm. And it kind of sneaks up on us, and suddenly we just find ourselves not actually acting like believers. Mm-hmm. And it kind of just, it's like our mind goes blank and we're not, it's easy when you're in church or around people that are putting on a good show of, oh, we got it all together. But it's kind of like when you're driving down the road and all of a sudden you have an accident because you stopped paying attention. Sin seems to captivate us like that. It kind of comes on us and swallows us up and spits us out before we even have a a chance or a conscious way to respond. So I don't know if you can address that. It's kind of a work out your salvation with fear and trembling kind of a thing, but sin just seems to have a hold on us that we can't seem to escape it in a certain sense. Right. And that's why you have this constant exhortation by Paul, especially, be awake, be on guard, beware. Our biggest, I think you put your finger on it, the biggest enemy of our eternal destiny is slumber, is just basically falling asleep spiritually, where we just get into the rut of our everyday life, and we become so preoccupied with it and so distracted by it and so absorbed in it that we forget my existence. You know, we forget the reason I'm actually here. And so my life is given over to the trivial pursuits of everyday life and not to the focus of a destiny that God created me for. And that's where Paul says we need to beware. We need to be on the alert. Don't allow sin to put you to sleep. You know, throw sand in your eyes and put you to sleep so that you forget what your existence is all about. Because that's fatal. If we really can do that, it's fatal. We're going to find ourselves a corpse in the wilderness and not entering into the promised land. Well, if, just to follow up briefly, it's not so much that I'm talking about getting distracted, which that can be a, a real issue, but I'm talking about even people that are seriously pursuing knowing God on a daily basis, 
being awake, but still finding yourself being sinful. Well, what are they awake to? The well, people I guess talking? you value goodness. You want to live rightly. You're conscious of your Creator. You're you're seeking to know Him. You're seeking to learn. You're diligent in studying Scripture and all those kinds of things that probably consider yourself maybe even someone who's a very avid pursuer of yeah. wanting eternal life, and it's what you're all about. But sin just finds a way. I don't know if you've ever exactly. heard that expression. Be, because the key missing piece that, that can always be there is I may be awake to the Bible and biblical truths and Christianity and Jesus and God and all that kind of stuff, but I'm clueless about myself. I don't believe any of it, and I don't even know I don't believe any of it because I'm asleep when it comes to my own assessment of my relationship to those things. I am amazed at that passage in Paul where he says, forgive me, I'm a terrible memorizer, but you know, I beat my body and make it my own, lest after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. So what, what Paul is saying is, sure, I love the truth. I love to read the scriptures. I love the gospel. I'm an apostle who proclaims the gospel. I'm a missionary. His whole life is completely preoccupied with the things of God, and yet he recognizes the possibility that having taken all this stuff to other people, what if in the end I'm disqualified? How do you, Jack, deal with your own rebellion? I guess is what the ultimate question is. I mean, That's kind of a personal question. (laughs) (laughs) How do we bring that into practical day-to-day living as this sin captivates us? I just always have to raise the question as a possibility. Jack, are you bullshitting yourself? Do you really believe this? Is what you say is important to you, really important to you? Are you really willing to take it to its logical conclusions? Are you willing to change your life in accordance with this truth that you teach others and proclaim to others? Are you willing to take it seriously enough that it will impact your life? And by raising the question, I think we are staying awake. Now, does that mean you can always, there's an easy way to deceive yourself, always answer yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a good guy, I really believe. Well, is it true? Am I willing to entertain the possibility that I am self-deceived? Because that's how insidious, powerful, our own sinfulness and our own depravity is, is that we can deceive ourselves. And if we don't think that's true, we don't have a clue about ourselves. So, I, How do you measure that as you live? Oh, I, ultimately, I don't know that we can. Ultimately, the answer to that is in the judgment of God, and all we can do is the best we can do. The more we understand the Scripture, the more we understand what holiness looks like as the Bible describes it, the better template we're going to have to measure ourselves by. That's the biggest problem in the church today. Our templates are lousy. How we evaluate ourselves spiritually, a lot of us look a whole lot better than we really are because our template is so inadequate. How often do you go to church? Do you, how do you pray? Do you, you know, any demon can pray, for goodness sakes. It doesn't take the supernatural power of the Spirit of God to make somebody into a prayer or a churchgoer or a lot of the things that we elevate to the level of the most important marks of where a person is at. So the better we can understand and more sensitively we can understand the picture of holiness that's described in the Bible, the better we'll be able to get an assessment of how I'm doing and who I am and what the truth is about me. But ultimately it's a judgment. 
And ultimately, I just have to fall on my face before God and go, I think I believe, I believe I believe, help my unbelief, and God have mercy on me. Last question. So you use the word a lot of times qualified mm-hmm. for the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And so obviously, that, is that looking in the mirror and saying, ultimately, you're not worthy? No. When I talk about being qualified for the kingdom of God, qualified is a fortunate word, uh, and perhaps I shouldn't use it. Being fit for the kingdom of God might be better because the qualification is faith, contrition, recognizing that I'm unworthy. I mean, maybe that's what you're saying, you know, recognizing that I'm unworthy and out of my recognition that I'm unworthy, realizing that God is merciful and will grant mercy to such as I. That's the person who's fit for it. None of us are deserving of the kingdom of God, which qualified tends to have that connotation. And I don't mean that. I mean that we are meeting the one and only condition that God has placed on a destiny in the eternal kingdom of God. If we meet that condition, that's what I mean by being qualified. But none of us deserve to go there. We all deserve to be smashed. i got to let you go. Thank you.